Welcome to the 401st of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I speak with Rabbi Mike Harvey, resident chaplain within the Indiana University Health System in Indianapolis. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, January 18th, 2022, there are 5,547,422 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is Holocaust Survivor 81 Dies from Coronavirus in Boynton Beach. It appeared in the Palm Beach Post, September 4th, 2020. It was written by Mike Diamond. Laszlo Fisher knew he was fortunate to live the 81 years he did. The Boynton Beach resident was just six years old in May of 1944 when he, his brother, both sets of grandparents, his mother and an aunt were about to board a Budapest train headed for the Auschwitz concentration camp. A Hungarian soldier yelled, Fisher family, pulling them out of line. They then spent the next several months at a Jewish ghetto in Budapest until the Russians liberated the city in February of 1945. Fisher was not as fortunate when it came to coronavirus. He succumbed to the disease April 5th, 2020. Palm Beach County, Florida, recorded its first COVID-19 case March 12th, 2020, the same day, Fisher woke up with a fever and a cough. Ten days later, he was admitted to Bethesda East with COVID-19 and pneumonia. Four days later, he was put on a ventilator. His time at Bethesda was like a roller coaster, daughter-in-law Lauren Fisher said. There were good days and bad days. Eventually, the virus attacked his kidneys, causing a shutdown of his organs. If he contracted the virus a month later, the outcome might have been different. There was so much back then they did not know. She said her sister contracted the disease as well, but was able to overcome it. Years ago, Fisher detailed his experience in Nazi-controlled Hungary for the University of Southern California-based Shoah Foundation. He's one of more than 3,000 Holocaust survivors to be interviewed. Researchers met with him in Boca Raton in 1997. Fisher said no one knew the soldier who took them out of line that fateful day in May of 1944, even though he was only six. He vividly remembers the soldier yelling out the family name. He surmises that the soldier must have recognized someone in the family as they had operated a well-known bakery in the Buddha section of Budapest. Standing in line, waiting to get on the train was the scariest moment of my life. We were so lucky, he said in an interview. Life was very difficult for Fisher during the nine months he lived in the Budapest ghetto. 
I saw terrible things, he said. There were as many as 10 people to a room in the apartment we were living in. There was very little food. We took water from the toilet to wash. I can remember how much I looked forward to taking a shower, which was not all that often. Then one day, we saw soldiers with different uniforms. It was the Russians. Fisher said it was difficult to describe what he went through. I just don't want it to be forgotten, he noted. Even after the liberation, he said Hungary was not a good place to be if you were Jewish. Anti-Semitism was rampant. When the Hungarian Revolution broke out in 1956, he immigrated to Denmark and he met his wife, Vibka, there and they were married in 1965. Fischer said Denmark was very kind to Jews during World War II. He thought it would be a much better place to be. He was an outstanding soccer player, and in 1967 in Amsterdam, he was part of Denmark's national team in the Maccabiah Games, also known as the Jewish Olympics. He had a wonderful life there, he told the Shoah interviewer, but we had a chance to go to the United States in 1969, and we decided to go. Fisher lived in the New York area and worked as an electrician for the United Postal Service for most of his adult life. He bought a condominium west of Boynton Beach three years ago, before 2020. Vipka called her late husband her Superman, adding, He was my life. He was my security. He was my love. He would wash the diapers on the stove in Denmark because they didn't have disposable diapers. Their daughter, Monica, was born in Denmark in 1966. Ten years later, Michael was born in America. Michael Fisher said his father was his best friend and was his best man at his wedding. I hope that I'm half the man that he was, he said. Monica Fisher called her father a quiet and humble man, but always able to touch our hearts with his actions. We will forever treasure our special time with him. Ipka Fisher was tested a number of times while her husband was hospitalized. She always tested negative, but did test positive for the antibodies. Lauren Fisher remembers one day asking her father-in-law how he was doing at Bethesda East and whether he needed anything. He wanted so much to take a shower, she said, noting she couldn't help but think back to his days in the Jewish ghetto in Budapest when he told the Shoah interview how much he looked forward to taking a shower. Shortly before he passed away, the family was able to arrange a five-way telephone call with the family and a rabbi who said a prayer. It was all very touching, Lauren Fisher said. Lauren Fisher, who writes children's books, dedicated a poem to her father-in-law a month after he passed away. Part of it reads, One month ago you became an angel. Words cannot express how empty we feel. We just want one more hug, one more laugh, one more day. We cannot hold your hand when you needed it. Saying goodbye is never easy, but not being able to say goodbye is extremely hard. We will talk about you to our children every day. Watch over us and send us messages that you are okay. You will always be our Superman. Query of Laszlo Fisher, who died in 2020 of COVID-19. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today. Let me introduce my guest, Rabbi Mike Harvey. Rabbi Mike is a resident chaplain within the Indiana University Health System in Indianapolis. He was ordained from Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion in 2015, and is a strong proponent of interfaith dialogue and communication. His book, Let's Talk, A Rabbi Speaks to Christians, will be published by Fortress Press in the summer of 2022. 
Rabbi Harvey also hosts a podcast with an Episcopal priest entitled A Priest and a Rabbi Walk Into a Bar, and we're going to talk about that, as well as his YouTube series and much more. Rabbi Mike Harvey, welcome to COVID Calls. Thank you so much, Scott. I'd like to start the way I generally do, just find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is there today. Certainly. So as you said, I'm a resident chaplain at the IU Health System, so I'm based here in Indianapolis, Indiana. And I get a good look at what the COVID numbers are in the hospitals, uh, which I unfortunately can't share with the public. But we do uh, see the numbers from the Indiana area, and we are going through a surge. Uh, the numbers are rising, and um, hospitals are on diversion. Our ICUs are filling up, and um, Omicron is now hitting not only patients, but our staff as well. We have well over a 1,000 staff members statewide out, um, and you can imagine the stress that that puts on the other staff. Um, and everyone is telling everyone at uh, in the IU health system that if you're starting to feel sick, stay home, get tested, um, and, uh, you know, wear the mask, all that sort of stuff. They don't have to tell us to get vaccinated. We were first in line um, uh, to get those and the booster and everything. But um, still, we are um, we are getting Omicron and we're getting COVID and Luckily, it's not life-threatening, but it does take us out of commission every once in a while. And, and were you in, in the hospital uh, doing your work during the Delta wave and the, and the first wave as well? Is this your third, third time through this? So I started my residency in August, so only, okay. um, only for the past six months or so. However, I was a congregational rabbi when the first wave hit. Um, I was in West Lafayette, Indiana, and we had to make some big decisions pretty quickly. Um, I serve now as the chair of the Indiana Board of Rabbis. Um, then I was not the chair, but we together came together and made some strong recommendations and some decisions about how synagogues should handle things going via distance and um, how to protect our congregants. And that was a very, very tough year. I wonder if you could share a memory of this time, I know it's probably impos impossible to parse one, but maybe something that really sticks in your memory as as sort of what this time has been about for you. It is hard to find one memory, certainly since I started working in the ICU. Um, but I think a memory that sticks with me is just, um, you know, one day being up on the ICU and the nurses were just, um, you could tell they had had it. They had just um, had enough. And so um, chaplains like myself at IU, we have access to something what's called the tranquility cart. And it's basically a little cart full of um, snacks, water, candy, tea, uh, positive messages, things like that. And I took the cart around the entire ICU, nurses, respiratory therapists, doctors. Um, and it really gave everyone just a little, a little boost that day. Um, just letting people know that 
their exhaustion is validated, that we know how hard they're working and um, giving them a little, a little something. Those are the moments that keep us together and keep our heads up as we work together through this. Uh, thank you for sharing that. And well, it really sticks with me. I mean, I, I think about a lot about how to talk about the enormity of all of this. And we have the statistics, which don't cover it. And uh, we have the flow of political events, which are disappointing. But what you just described, that, that sort of like that experience of just providing a moment of validation, it seems like that's that's the real stuff of it. That's what gets added up to how we will experience it. Unfortunately, not always positive like that. But maybe, you know, with that in mind, could you tell me a little bit about how you got into this kind of work? I mean, being a resident sure. chaplain is not something most people would know anything about how you get into. Yeah, no, I, I think, first of all, I think you're right. I think these little moments of empathy uh, and giving people the human factor to these statistics and numbers it happens um, not often enough. Um, I was a congregational rabbi for five years, and during that time, certainly I did pastoral care to my congregation. And before that, um, within my five years of seminary, I did one unit of clinical pastoral education in Louisville, Kentucky, and Norton Healthcare and Coaster Children's Hospital. And it was a transformative experience, really, uh, really incredible. And as my congregational work started to go on, I recognized that there were parts of it that did not quite fit me in terms of my personality. And so I tried to hone in on what were the parts of the rabbinate that do bring me passion and um, allow me to be myself. And those were teaching, certainly adult, edu adult education in terms of that, and pastoral care, caring for people who uh, were vulnerable and needed someone just to listen, just to be there. And not just people who were in the hospital who were sick, but people who had emotional issues or spiritual issues or whatever it is. Those were the real moments that I clung to. And so um, I decided to uh, leave the congregational world and I took a little bit of time off to be a stay-at-home dad and figure out what I wanted to do next. And I recognized that chaplaincy really was something amazing. It was a place where Chaplaincy is a, a department where, unlike in congregational world, feelings and vulnerability and frustrations and anger and sadness are not only allowed, they're encouraged to process and understand so that you can be a better caregiver. What I experienced in the congregational world was sort of this uh, being put on a pedestal of this infallible, unbreakable, uh, idea of a rabbi. And, um, I'm sure my Christian colleagues feel the same way. Um, and it just isn't, it wasn't sustainable. And so me who, who personally, you know, thrives on true feelings and, um, connecting with people on that level, 
and being able to have empathy and, and express my feelings, chaplaincy is that safe space to do that and use that growth to provide the best care for people who are experiencing fear and loss and terrible things that they're going through. And it just works both ways for me personally and professionally. Uh, I'm, I'm sitting here, you know, taking all this in and thinking, how does a person, I'm imagining the, I don't know the better word for it, a job interview. I'm a, imagining the person who selects a chaplain and what they know <laughs> and how, what they're looking for in someone like you. How do you spot, you know, the person who has those tools? Because, because the day in and day out stress and the, and the toll on the chaplain must be intense. The people that, you know, make these decisions, the CPE, the clinical pastoral education, supervisors and educators, um, they are uh, incredibly experienced. They have experienced uh, such a wealth of situations and self-reflection that they can spot through, I mean, by the way, to, to apply to be a chaplain, it, you know, besides the many interviews, there are an intense amount of writing and essays and, and, you know, talking about your family history and self-evaluations. And it's a, it's a pretty rigorous issue, uh, process. They're able to spot, uh, things that, you know, somebody else without that experience wouldn't be able to. They, they can see, you know, I feel like you're connected with that or you've had experience with that and that will lead to, because remember, they're not just looking for, um, you know, as a resident, they're not looking for a perfect chaplain, a fully experienced chaplain, you know, a staff chaplain or a board certified chaplain. They're looking for someone who has the potential to grow in the role and become those things. So they're looking for potential. Um, and with my experience as a rabbi and my five years in seminary and my internship with um, CPE and all of that, um, I'm very lucky that they saw that potential in me and that I was one of the few who were selected. It's a very competitive, um, you know, process. And um, I was very, very lucky to be, to be selected. Um, and it is hard work and it's emotionally taxing and spiritually taxing and mentally taxing and it has a physical effect um, but these are people who are right there with you as educators leading you through this and giving you um, you know theories and psychological ideas that you have to study as well as true interpersonal relations with your cohort writing what are called verbatims where you you have a meeting with a patient and you have to write word for word as close as you can mm -hmm. that interaction and they see well you, that wasn't quite an open-ended question i think you had a missed opportunity here and you have to sort of work on that and process that it's a very rigorous thing to be able to provide proper and strong pastoral care and connect with people and they take it very seriously
Just want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking today with Rabbi Mike Harvey. And um, Rabbi Mike, maybe you know, you're know you talking a bit about the work there. I don't imagine there is an average day in the chaplaincy, but maybe you could walk me through a, a little bit. What are people expecting from you? What are some of the interactions like? Sure. Uh, certainly there is no standard day. Uh, there are standard hours, but there's no standard day. Um, much of my time is spent on my units. Uh, chaplains are assigned particular units of a hospital. My two units are, uh, one side is on the university health side of uh, the ICU, and the other side is in the Riley Children's Hospital um, in their hemodialysis unit. And so when I'm not studying or in didactics or basically class classes towards towards my residency that's where i spend my time um, now that can be walking around the units and looking at uh, if there are referrals of people who ask for a chaplain talking to the staff and saying um, who might need a visit today and they say you know this person was really upset yesterday they could use a visit um, looking at uh, multi-patient task list to see who has filled out uh, important documentations or not, like advanced directives and end-of-life uh, plannings. Um, and others are just cold calls that, you know, here's someone who just got to the hospital and you want to make sure you know they know that there's a chaplain there and introduce yourself uh, and say, look, you know, I'm part of the team here. I'm part of the non-medical side. But sometimes talking to a doctor or a nurse or whoever it is isn't exactly what you're looking for. If you're looking to process things or vent a little bit, if you need a liaison between yourself and the staff, if you need spiritual care and prayer, you just call the nurse and they'll page me and I'll come right up. It could be three in the morning. We've got chaplains 24-7. And that lets that person know, one, that they're supported, that they're not alone, and two, that there is a resource for them. Um, while they're here at the hospital, the same as the social workers and the caseworkers and everybody else on the non-medical side to make sure that their stay is um, taken care of and that they have all their needs met, not just on the medical side. And chaplaincy is certainly in the IU health uh, uh, network, a very beloved and necessary and appreciated aspect of the team. It's not so in other hospitals. Um, IU Health particularly has a strong history with chaplaincy. And so um, it's a great program where the staff and the doctors understand each other. They, uh, they call for you, you call for them and work together as a team. That's pretty much what a standard day is. Um, on, on rougher days, you'll have codes or things you need to, you know, or deaths, unfortunately. Um, and then there's times when you're on call, uh, where you're there for, eight to 12 hours at a time, sometimes overnight, and you handle every call uh, in the hospital that needs a chaplain or any trauma that comes in, and you're there right there when they're in the emergency room, again, to make sure that they're not alone. Um, and if they need someone to call or if they're scared or, um, you know, there's things that they need us to help them with. Um, you know, people don't think about that. You don't, you don't see any chaplains in medical dramas unfortunately, but we're always right there uh, in the room. You always see them in, in war films, and you never yeah. see them in in hospital and medical shows, which I think is, right. is really interesting. And the, um, 
I want to ask you about the interfaith aspect of this. Sure. Um, because, I mean, you have your own faith tradition which you're trained in, um, which you teach. Um, but then in the hospital as a chaplain, it, you're providing spiritual support, or lots of different kinds of support. Um, do people ask in those kinds of settings? Do they say, I'd rather speak with a, with a Catholic priest or an imam? Or it doesn't, it's not like that. It's more that people are just looking to receive some spiritual encouragement in that moment. It's a good question. And it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, we as chaplains are trained um, to say nothing of the interfaith training that I've had uh, beforehand. Interfaith has always been a passion of mine, but we are trained to provide uh, very non-denominational um, ecumenical prayers that could work with um, Jewish or Christian or whoever else. Um, and sometimes if there are things that perhaps could uh, violate the integrity of the chaplain, those are things that we allow the patient to do. So for instance, I will always end a prayer um, in saying, you know, in your name, O God, we pray these things. A Christian might want to add the name of Jesus to that, perfectly fine. A Catholic might want to do the sign of the cross, perfectly fine, right? A Muslim might want to add something in terms of Allah, um, but we allow that space and, of course, preface it with saying, you know, um, can we pray for you? Most people, I'll be honest, don't ask. Um, for better or for worse, most people uh, assume that all chaplains are Christian. They're sort of um, surprised when they hear that there are Jewish chaplains or secular chaplains or, you know, whoever else. Um, and so they just assume that it's a very ecumenical prayer. Normally they don't ask. When they do ask, uh, we allow for them to see what are the needs that they have. And one of them might be a Catholic priest. There are particular prayers and sacraments and rites that only a Catholic priest can do. And so we do have Catholic priests that are on call who work with us in the hospital for those moments. And that's, that's totally appropriate. It's nothing to take personal, right? Um, we have Im lists of imams and Buddhist and Hindu leaders, um, in case that our, our patient needs something of a particular faith. We want to respect that and provide them with that kind of comfort. But most of the time, it, that the spiritual and emotional pastoral care that a chaplain provides is relatively neutral. Um, we're not praying for particular things in any particular faith tradition. You know, we're praying for health. We're praying for strength. We're praying for resilience. Um, these sort of things can be translatable in any faith tradition. And as a Jewish person, as a rabbi, one of my learning goals and one of my uh, goals in terms of being a better chaplain is to find that line of what are some things that I can do and what are the things that I can't do? And if I can't do it, how close can I get to make that person um, comfortable? So, for instance, sometimes um, people ask for children, newborns to be baptized. Um, that's not something I'm qualified to do uh, nor comfortable doing. That being said, there are rabbis who will 
not do the baptism, but provide all the steps for it and mm. the parent does it, right? There's always ways around it. Right. But our job as a chaplain is to make the patient feel comfortable and taken care of. And if it's me who can do it, amazing. If it's not me, then by God, we're going to find a person who can. And that's part of our care. We hear a lot about interfaith communication. I've never really thought about it this way, but but just as you said it, it's in the, the moment of maximum need that you will be looking for those things which are truly translatable across different faith traditions. Absolutely. And it sounds like what you're describing is there's an awful lot. Yes. There's, there's so many moments that are interfaith where we meet meet at those moments of vulnerability and care and uh, the rest of the stuff is just detail and those are beautiful and sometimes painful moments but uh, when i am mourning with a with a family nobody cares you know if what religion they are where they're they're hurting and they need someone to lead them in prayer because they're just not strong enough to and that's my role to lead them in the prayer for what they want. And as they're crying or as they're, you know, holding on to each other, I'm there filling that role for them to do that if they ask. Sometimes people don't want prayers. Some people just want a hand to hold or, um, you know, knowing that being a presence is also part of it. And so there's a lot that's intangible in terms of being a chaplain. Presence is, is um, it's underrated. Just being a presence can be extremely powerful. And so there's, you know, I find that uh, most of my time, we never even worry about whether it's rabbi or they call me pastor or whatever, it doesn't matter, as long as I'm there to help them. So in addition to this role, everything you've just been describing, you're, you're also a witness to what's going on there in the middle of this pandemic. And you're active on social media and on January 9th, you uh, posted a Twitter thread which went viral and is picked up by news media organizations. It's probably been mostly what you've been talking about ever since then when you're not working. Um, and I wonder if you could read it because it was to me, and I, I read a lot about COVID, this one hit me really hard. It really hits some aspects of the experience, particularly in this wave, that I had not quite pictured the way that you described it. Would, would it be okay if you read that thread now? I'd, I'd be happy to, yeah. And, and I'll tell you that um, when I did write the thread, one, I didn't expect it to go viral. Uh, two, when it did go viral, the first thing I did was contact my supervisors and, and said, uh-oh, am I in trouble? Um, <laughs> you know, uh, not that I shared anything inappropriate. There were no... There are no HIPAA violations or anything, but you never know in terms of... Yeah, more people should I, do that. More people should make that call ahead of time. But anyway, right. go ahead. <laughs> right, exactly. Not uh, you. Correct. correct. So, but what my supervisors told me and what I'll tell you as well is that the reason why they felt it was uh, important and they referred me to the PR, you know, part of IU to, you know, do all of that was because this is a story, the story of the chaplain is not really heard. Um, the point of view of a chaplain is not heard uh, on on most things. And people had never heard this perspective before. And it's what we live every day. And so I think it surprised people. And I think it, 
it, it seemed to connect with with people in a way that I I didn't realize. So um, yeah, so I'm, I, let me let me read it for you here. I'm going to give you the full screen while you do this, and I'll join you back in just a second. Okay. So it begins uh, like this. I've held my tongue a lot when it comes to COVID-19 and the emotional strain it puts on staff, but I feel like tonight is a good night to speak on it. For those who don't know, I work as a resident chaplain at IU Health, and my unit is currently the medical ICU. With this, with my unit as the medical ICU, as well as the step-down unit to the MPCU, I can tell you that most of the patients I see on the MICU side are COVID-19 positive. Yes, there are other units that hold COVID patients that are less severe symptoms, which is mainly vaccinated patients with strong working immune systems. However, my unit is where the sickest of the sick come in the state. Our ICU houses COVID patients, among others, that other hospitals can't handle. So when it's a last-ditch effort, they send them to us. So what is it like walking down the halls of the pods of the ICU? It's cold, it's dark, it's quiet. Why? Because these folks are all intubated, hooked up to massive amounts of equipment, machines breathing for them and feeding them through tubes. Heavy blankets cover their bodies, or machines so big cover them and you can't even see anything but their legs. Family isn't around much. It's dangerous to go into hospitals these days. COVID has spread to the staff, with over a 1,000 staff members out statewide. Nurses are overworked and understaffed, covering two to three patients themselves, when typically it's less in a place like the ICU. They're running past me, giving people meds, answering call buttons, putting on PPE gear, or snacking when they can. COVID-19 is especially cruel disease. To those who have overcome adversity, cancer, MS, bone marrow transplants, and the like, COVID swoops in and takes them away from their families. They just finished chemo months ago. Their diabetes was under control. And yes, they did everything right. They got vaccinated, if they could, as sometimes it's useless with little or no immune systems. They did everything right, overcame great odds, and yet they come to my unit to die. Now there are far more who come to that come that are unvaccinated. The numbers don't lie. We are swarmed with the unvaccinated. Their family members tell us he or she was so stubborn. They tell us, well, I'm going to get vaccinated now. All it took was the death of a loved one. They tell us they didn't believe it was real. They tell us to try to pray. Can you imagine sitting in my PPE gear, my N95 pinching my face, my face shield fogging up, my gloves tight on my hands, and the unvaccinated wife who made her husband refuse vaccination asks me to pray for him as he lays dying. What is there to pray for? COVID is a cruel disease. It's taking those who did the right thing, who got the jab. But who are those millions of immunocompromised Americans infected by the unvaccinated and the thoughtless? 
A nurse walks by as I stand in the doorway of another patient. Their family has moved them to comfort care, DNR. There's nothing else to do. Was he vaccinated? I ask. I've stopped asking, she says. Either answer makes me upset. She's right. If the answer is no, then we're angry. If the answer is yes, that means they fought the odds, got the jab, but still didn't make it. This isn't the flu. This isn't a cold or a sore throat. This is pain. This is people not being able to breathe. Patients are afraid. Families are heartbroken. They cry and argue in the quiet rooms, wondering who brought COVID into the house, which aunt refused to get vaccinated, and now is killing the grandfather. There's guilt, there's shame, there's anger, and then there's us. Some people drink, some people eat, to cope with this kind of horror show on repeat. When one body is taken out of the room, another patient takes their place. I experience fatigue. At any point in my workday, I could close my eyes and go to sleep right there. But I've got to stay awake, provide care for the crying and stressed nurses, provide care for the families, vaccinated and unvaccinated, provide prayer for those dying alone with only the sound of the machines to accompany them. COVID is a cruel disease and it's taken over our ICU. Yes, we have others, organ failure, AKI, GI bleeds and mysterious illnesses yet diagnosed. But the vast majority on my patient lists are COVID positive. I've been at this since August. The doctors and nurses have been at this for years. How they manage, I'll never know. But even a hello and asking how they're holding up makes a difference. If you know a nurse or a doctor, give them a hug. Tell them they matter. Thank them. We're fighting a losing battle. People are dying every day. And when we return to our staff meetings, we hear the words surge again and again. It's not going away. It's scary. It's exhausting. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms farther. And then one fine morning, so we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. Rabbi Mike Harvey reading from a Twitter thread that he posted January 9th. He's the resident chaplain of the IU health system, talking with him today on COVID calls and giving you a chance to breathe there a second. After reading that, Rabbi Mike, thank you for for that. And what I'm struck by in it, um, sometimes Twitter is very good as a format because it does force you into these small communication packets, and you have to really be efficient. and And what I what I hear in that, and what I read in that many times now is this collision of empathy and anger and you don't hold back do you no um 
And I think if you ask most chaplains and most hospital staff these days, that is the combination. There's sadness and there's anger. Um, and it goes back and forth. And we're just trying to maintain those emotions and control those emotions. But um, those are the ones that are swimming around our units. This um, particular moment in in the description where you talk about, so the two parts I want to ask you about, one about the, the family member who's there and the the person dying is not vaccinated and they want your support in that moment. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about that? Because the job, as you've described it, demands that you you're there to provide and console. But that would that would seem to somehow and I know you're doing it, but at the same time that that's a pretty tall ask. Yes. Uh, and I will tell you that uh, nurses, doctors, respiratory therapists, and chaplains, our job is to provide care, vaccinated, unvaccinated. And, and I'll widen that a little bit, right? Um, drug, ad drug addicts, criminals, right? Whoever it is, whoever comes into our, uh, our units, our job isn't to judge our this is a patient, they need our care. Uh, and so if the person is vaccinated or unvaccinated, what they need is care. They need empathy and they need uh, prayer, same as anybody else would. You know, afterwards, that's when staff privately are able to express emotion about it you know the same thing would happen uh if it, if there is a pediatric emergency room and you find out it's uh non-accidental you know trauma or something right and cps is involved right there's anger with that as well right our job is to take care of the patient and the family and then afterwards you know when we're reflecting that's when we'll shake our heads and we'll just say that was so uh pointless that could have been avoided they could have gotten the jab they could have gotten vaccinated and they wouldn't have been here um and we blame the purposeful disinformation campaigns we blame you know politicians we blame social media but the cost is real right the cost of these things are people's lives and these are real people who are husbands and wives and brothers and sisters and all of that and they're gone now because of a poor decision and if you can only imagine the kind of guilt and shame and anger that exists within that family um it, you know ours is nothing compared to that and our job, my job as a chaplain, is to help them through that, you know, um, not to judge them for it. Um, I think it's hard because this is one particular mistake that we see so much. 
in the pandemic, right? People make mistakes. People make poor decisions. Sure. Um, that, that happens all the time and they end up in the hospital. This one is, is on repeat and it got so much that, you know, it's like a broken record, right? You hear the same story. They were so stubborn. They didn't think it was real. You know, well, I'm going to get vaccinated now. You hear it so much, you know, it's, um, it's, it's hard to comprehend. But the problem is, and this is the struggle that we have, is that we are such a reactionary society um, and individualistic that until we see it and it affects us, it's just sort of out there in the air. And we're providing care to the people who are in it who see it, who see their loved one getting intubated, um, who see their loved one coding and going through CPR and um, or making the decision for comfort care because there's nothing more we can do. Those are real difficult moments and there's no time for judgment in there, no place for it. Let me ask you a, a, a second, but the second thing that really comes out of that, um, you know, Twitter thread to me, which is the, uh, the other kind of person that you're praying over, which is the immunocompromised person who's not able to be vaccinated. Or as you said, they fought, they've already fought for their life once or twice or multiple times. And now they're in the hospital, um, because of COVID. And so then, and I don't know what people are bringing to you in that moment, but I can only imagine that one of the things a family member would express is that same kind of anger that you just described that the staff have to suppress. And that's for later because you're there to give care. But I think about, you know, if I was in that situation and I had a family member who'd, who'd beaten cancer and, but was now in the, in the ICU dying of COVID. Um, well, I don't know what I would think, but one of the things I imagine I would, would be processing is a lot of anger. <clears throat> We do see that a lot, Scott. I mean, we see heartbreak. I mean, these are people, as you said, right? They, they overcame cancer sometimes more than once, right? They just been through a bone marrow, bone marrow transplant. They, they have MS. They have, you know, diabetes. They have things that, um, already, uh, they have worked hard adversity to overcome and we're okay they were manageable these are these are people who would outlive us probably right um and covid comes in and all you need to have is that little bit of immunocompromised for it to take hold and turn your lungs to concrete and um it is intensely tragic to see that and it's you know, the, the ideas of this is unfair and, you know, the unquestion, the unanswerable questions of why, you know, the, the spiritual question, you know, from, from beyond time, right? Is why him? Why now? Why her? You know, um, and those are where as a chaplain and my, you know, religious studies, a seminary and a rabbi, come into play, right? Where we have to talk through theology and we have to help people uh, express 
and process the absolute uh, unimaginable that they are now going through. And yes, there's anger towards the, you know, there's anger globally towards the disinformation campaign. There's anger towards the unvaccinated. Um, and there's just anger in terms of, you know, this isn't fair. This wasn't supposed to happen. Um, and there are heartbreaking moments and there's far too many of them. And what's more heartbreaking and, and more upsetting is the talking point that we see far too much in terms of they were immunocompromised anyway, or they weren't going to survive anyway, or what this dehumanization of people with, you know, comorbidities, comorbidities, right? That somehow their life wasn't worth as much as someone who was healthy. Um, it's a real talking point that we see all the time and it's horrendous. It's monstrous. Um, and remembering that when you're seeing these people and their families and, you know, you hear children telling, telling us, uh, you know, adult children telling us, you know, he was the best. He was awesome. He was, you know, it was incredible or she was such a strong mom or, you know, um, you know, it takes a lot out of you. Those are tragic cases that, again, outside of a pandemic, a chap might have, I don't know, a couple times a month, maybe. Um, sometimes it's every day now, and it takes an emotional toll. And it's hard. Um, well, I, I should have said this at the beginning. Thank you. I mean, thanks, thank you for what you do. but And, and also, thank you for, for giving word to it, uh, for helping the rest of us with it. And I want to, there's another part of this I want you just raised that I wanted to ask about. Um, you know, early in the pandemic, and, and I know what people are trying to do when they talk in this way, when they're not cynical about death, they're trying to offer some comfort. So if a person was older, let's say that person had a full life. Um, if they're, if they're younger, maybe they'll say it was God's plan. We don't really know, you know. We don't understand all these things if they're, as you just mentioned, the com comorbidities discourse. This is a person who had many other health problems, and so this this happened to them. Um, and I just got to be honest with you, Rabbi Mike, maybe I'm asking for your help in this moment. I don't like those. Yeah. I don't like those at all. Because I feel like they take our attention away from the things that we could be doing to protect everyone. And that's just where I'm coming from on this. Um, I, I'm not asking you to talk me down, but I just wonder what you think about <laughs> what you think about that, because I and particularly early on, I mean, I, I was very close to my grandparents. They had died well, almost all except for one grandparent had died before the pandemic some many years ago. But when the pandemic started and I saw people were being the way people were being treated in nursing homes or forgotten by the state. I'm still I'm still traumatized by that. I mean, my trauma here is not important, but it, I'm really unhappy with that. 
I, I don't like what that says about our society, Rabbi Mike. You know, um, first of all, thank you for sharing that and, and for expressing that. Um, I think you're, you are one of many who are experiencing sort of this, uh, communal PTSD from these traumatic moments that occur. And I'll be honest with you, we feel them too. Um, as a rabbi, as a chaplain, um, I will tell you that those one-liners are absolutely wrong to say. Um, what I teach in my experience is that there is only one thing to say at death, and that's nothing. Presence and care during death, because those, uh, and sometimes those are liturgical one-liners, things that are embedded in particular theology, but better place, God's plan, flower in God's garden, all that nonsense is traumatic and abusive. Uh, it takes away from that's, I mean, to say nothing of they already had comorbidity. I mean, that, like I said, that's monstrous, but that takes away the human factor and the emotional factor as if that one line is supposed to solve your trauma, right? Um, whether we're talking about a grandfather who you've loved or a child that you've lost, right? Um, that line is simply something that people have been taught to parrot, you know, God's plan. Well, then screw God, you know, if that's his plan, you know, um, he lived a full life. Well, he had more time to live, you know, um, they're not helpful. And we teach and are taught, uh, to avoid them. Um, and I personally have struggled as a rabbi with what are the appropriate liturgical aspects within Judaism to say at death. There are. There are prescribed things to say at death. Um, beforehand, right at, you know, right after. And I don't like any of them. I think they're trite. I think they're uh, feelingless. And um, for me as a chaplain, when I see people diving into those words, I feel as though something has been taken away. And there is great power in presence and silence to take in the whole situation and see what true mourning and true loss is. You don't need words for that. You don't need liturgy for that. Um, and it's not just um, within Judaism. I mean, I've, I've seen Christian pastors come in and say things that I, uh, you know, I'm glad I had a mask on. They could have seen me sneering, right? Um, thanking God for the blessings and all this sort of stuff when children are dying in front of them. Um, so I'm, I'm with you there. And, uh, what I always teach wherever I am is, look, the, the best thing to say at death is nothing. Arm, hand on the shoulder, hand in hand, hugs, crying. Words come later. Tell stories about them. Talk about it at death, even right after death. You don't need to say anything. 
just feel things. Um, and I think that's lost on far too many people. From your vantage point in, in this time, you know, um, religious services uh, in many parts of the country, I guess, are back to some semblance of normal, although they're disrupted in other parts of the country. And I think, yes. um, you know, going remote was about education, it was about work, and it's also been about faith. Um, been a lot of transitions in the way people um, interact with their faith communities, yeah. the way they learn um, about religion, if they're religious or not. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder, you know, it's, it's a big landscape with a lot happening out there, but just from, the, from, from where you're sitting and how you think about it, do you think religion in American life is being transformed at this time in fundamental ways, or are these mostly just modifications we're make, making to get through this moment and they'll kind of snap back to something that looked like 2019 after? Oh, no, there's there's no going back. Um, and religious institutions uh, have been permanently changed. Um, what we did in 2019 when we started going remote and adapting and um, we did things that showed what were the necessary parts of faith institutions and faith in general, and what were the expendable parts. And once people learned what was expendable, there's no going back to those. But once people learned what are, what, how do we create a sense of community and what does community mean? That's forever changed. The, the idea of a faith community is forever changed. That you can have a faith community over Zoom and FaceTime and live stream. And, um, you can, we had to do funerals where I was the only person there. And then you had an iPad, right? Um, with people on a Zoom call that showed us that that was possible. It's possible to do those things. Is it the, uh, best case scenario? No. It's not. Um, In-person community is something that we long for and people miss. And there is a great uh, piece of us missing those who are religious um, in that. However, after two years of this, um, coming up on three years, right, um, this new normal uh, is like anything else. In history, when institutions or religion in general are forced to uh, make that choice of um, alligator or dinosaur, right? Adapt and stay alive or dig your heels in and die. So I refer to it as um and i refer by the way this process within faith institutions uh long precedes the pandemic but the pandemic put it front and center and that is is your religious institution whether it is a synagogue or a church or whatever it is um is it in rehab or is it in hospice if it's in rehab rehab is painful it's hard it takes work. There's ebbs and flows. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to overwork yourself. There's growing pains. But in the end, you're up walking upright and you're doing it. 
that takes hard work and a, and a religious institution can do it, right? They can adapt and they can say, we're going to do this and we're going to do it um, remotely. And we've never done it before, but gosh darn it, we're going to do it. Um, and here's how we're going to do this holiday from now on. We're going to celebrate Passover or Hanukkah or Christmas or whatever it is. And nothing's going to stop us. You know, we're going to keep everybody safe and we can do both. And then there's the religious institutions who are in hospice who say, um, just make us comfortable. We like it how it always was. Don't change anything. And in the end, they die, right? Everybody leaves. The system doesn't work. And the last person out turns off the light. Um, and we are seeing now over these few years a dramatic, uh, change in seeing institutions die en masse because they were in hospice and then religious institutions thriving because they have, they've discovered new ways to inspire and bring community together. And that's what I mean where like we're never going back because these new ways will stick with us. Now, even if we go back in person, we're still going to live stream. Right. We're still going to be there because there are people who are, who can't come to services or, um, you know, who might be sick or whatever, you know, we are going to provide access to those people, things like that. And so it, it has been extremely transformative, um, for people in the congregational world. Um, thank God I'm not in that anymore, uh, that business anymore, but I'm well aware, um, within the Indiana Board of Rabbis of what's going on and the struggles and the, and the hard work to maintain that. Just a reminder to everyone that you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking today to Rabbi Mike Harvey, who's a resident chaplain in the Indiana University Health System. And uh, we've covered a lot of topics here today, Rabbi Mike, and you've been really generous with your time. I, I hope we can just talk a few more minutes. Um, I know it's evening and you're probably tired, but um, I wanted to talk about some of the other things that you do. So you've written a book which is going to appear in this summer, summer of 2022. It's titled, Let's Talk, A Rabbi Speaks to Christians. Talk to me about this book. Sure. Um, so as I said earlier, um, interfaith work and interfaith dialogue and education have always been a passion of mine. And so <clears throat> we're, even through seminary, wherever I was uh, leading a congregation, I would always uh, connect with uh, interfaith coalitions, interfaith councils. And if there wasn't one, I would create one um, and bring people of multiple faiths together. And so I would have a great deal of Christian colleagues, people who would become dear friends and dear colleagues wherever I would serve. And they were able to, um, with the friendship that we developed, feel comfortable to call me from time to time when they are looking at um, a Hebrew Bible or what they would call Old Testament uh, passage and say, you know, Rabbi can, you know, tell me what, what is this talking about and what is the Jewish connection? And then they ask me about New Testament stuff, which I've studied as well in Christian scriptures. And they'd say, well, what is Jesus talking about? I, I, I think it's this, but can you be the Jewish perspective? And I reckon I got these calls so much that I recognized that there is a need within not just Christian clergy, but lay people as well, um, of a little bit of uh, connectivity 
you know, the book that I wrote is not a Judaism 101 book. If you want to learn about Judaism, get Judaism for dummies or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. This is a book that speaks about when Judaism and Christianity uh, intersect with one another um, and what can happen. Um, misinterpretations or correct interpretations um, on, you know, non-malicious landmines that people step in and offend uh, to the malicious anti-Semitism or anti-Jewishness that we can see in the Gospels. Um, the ideas of co-opting, the ideas of typology and supersessionism, things that when people speak in Christianese, they're not sure, they're not aware when they're speaking to a mixed audience of terms, um, and basic things that from a Jewish point of view, if Christians knew, would strengthen their faith and, and help them in understanding Jesus's life as a first century Jew. That's what that book is about from a personal point of view. All the things that I've sort of compiled over my, you know, 10 years um, of studying and leading of what are things that I wish, you know, Christian, Christian clergy would know um, and Christian lay people as well. And um, I'm exceedingly grateful that Fortress Press agreed that this was uh, that there was a market for it and that people needed to hear it and they've been wonderful in terms of their content and copy editing and uh, we're looking forward to a summer 2022 release all right so people who've been listening to this conversation today are going to want to check that that book out um, and you can go ahead and pre-order it uh, wherever you order books i think you can pre-order it on amazon let's talk a rabbi speaks to christians and you also are part of a podcast, and that's the priest and a rabbi walk into a bar podcast. Probably the best name for a podcast I've heard <laughs> in an awfully long time. Yeah. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah, we like it. Yeah. Um, so, as a you know, from what I was talking about in terms of um, getting Christian colleagues, when I was in West Lafayette, Indiana, I became very close, and still am very close, with an Episcopal priest. His name is Reverend uh, Bradley Pace, um, and we are now dear, dear friends and our families are friends. And he was one of the people who we would love to just sit down over a beer and just talk Jewish Christian stuff. You know, um, he's, he's exceedingly educated. Um, he has his PhD. Um, and so we would talk in very high register stuff. Um, really, really wonderful. And then so I think someone suggested that we start, uh, recording these conversations or, or, you know, doing something like that. And, and it was uh, a little bit of a hard sell because we're at peak podcasts and everybody has a podcast and there's millions of them and we might get lost in the shuffle. But what we started to do was he and I would go around the local breweries um, in the area in West Lafayette and now in Indianapolis. And we'd sit and we'd have a beer. We'd talk about the beer that we're drinking. We'd give a little, um, a uh, little airtime to promote the brewery or the bar or whatever um, for letting us sit there. And we'd talk for an hour or so about religious topics. And we talk about holidays. We talk about serious issues. We, we laugh a lot. Um, it's a, um, you know, it, it's a, it's a way to talk about things in a very nonchalant, easy to easily accessible way. Um, to 
you know, people who have uh, devoted their lives to religion and clergy having a beer and, and talking religion. And um, it's been really wonderfully received, uh, surprisingly, but um, we're, it's fun for us and we're glad that it's fun for other people. And just so people can find that that podcast, they can find it on uh, where's the best place to find it? Apple Podcasts, I assume. Apple Podcasts has it and all the other little podcast places. All you have to look up is a priest and a rabbi walk into a bar um, and look for my name, Rabbi Mike Harvey and Reverend Bradley Pace, and they'll find us. So uh, one more thing I wanted to get to before we wrap up today, and and you've also um, been talking about this on social media. So I wonder if you could just take a moment to talk about it. You know, every, so anti-Semitism is, is always there, uh, in, in American life. And it's part of the background always of American violence, but it's been coming to the fore. And then we had this hostage situation in Colleyville just a few days ago. Um, and then just before the pandemic started, there was the mass shooting in California and Poe and then, um, the, of course, the Tree of Life uh, synagogue um, mass shooting. And I don't know, you know, I'm sort of curious from your perspective how you see COVID, how the atmosphere of COVID is somehow um, exacerbating um, conspiracy theories, anti-Semitism, you know, violence. What are we supposed to make of, what do you make of the connection between those two? Well, unfortunately, um, and I write about this quite a bit, um, there is a deep-seated anti-Semitic trope within the conspiracy theories connected with QAnon and COVID deniers and anti-vaxxers. Um, inevitably, if you dig deep enough into these um, groups, it comes to the idea of the secret people behind the scenes pulling the strings in the dark smoky rooms um you know the secret cabal and you know those sorts of things and what that is is a throwback anti-semitic trope to the protocols of the elders of zion um, which for people aren't familiar it was this um, fake document that uh, came out in the turn of the 20th century i think or 19th century i forget um that basically expresses these conspiracy theories that Jews control the world governments, control the world banks, control world leaders. Um, and, uh, you know, then there's the lizard people trope. That's also a Jewish trope, anti-Semitic trope. And so, yes, we are seeing that mixed with throughout history. Uh, plagues have been consistently blamed on the Jews. Um, the bubonic plague was blamed on it, uh, blamed on us. You know, any other diseases that occurred throughout medieval history were blamed on the Jews. Um, and so that comes up again. And we were, we're always surprised of the, um, how it's just under the surface and can be exacerbated again. And what we saw here in Texas was a true expression of that. The hostage taker chose a synagogue, chose a rabbi, uh, and had Rabbi Charlie, who's a colleague of mine, Charlie Citron Walker, who was taken hostage, had him call a rabbi in New York. 
And the purpose of that call was to release a prisoner that the U.S. was holding. Now, that expresses right out in the open. Uh, to us, it's like, what are you, crazy? Like, you know, but in this deep-seated anti-Semitic trope, the idea is you don't call the governor, you don't call military, you don't call a senator, you don't, you know, uh, attack a military base, you don't, you know, uh, take a po politician hostage. The true people who can work the levers and pull the strings are the powerful New York rabbis. Um, and uh, this was something that was believed and is believed. And we saw that in plain sight, um, violently and, you know, believed. And it that all goes back to COVID, to, you know, um, QAnon to the ideas of the secret governments and, um, you know, all that sort of stuff. It, it goes back to protocols and anti-Semitism. So it's always there. And since 2016, as, as you probably know, anti-Semitism has risen at an exponential rate and all these things have just exacerbated it. So what we saw in Texas a few days ago really was the culmination, another culmination of, of these uh, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories coming out in the open um, and being expressed in a violent way. And everyone's on edge. Um, Jews are shaken up everywhere. Rabbis with congregations are shaken up. Um, and um, it was, um, it, there's a collective trauma that's occurring with Jews around the world, certainly within the country um, for lots of reasons. So yes, that is certainly connected to to the pandemic and, and relevant to the conversation. Just want to remind folks that you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls live at 6 p.m. Eastern time. And I've been talking today with Rabbi Mike Harvey, the resident chaplain of the IU health system and in Indiana, coming out of Indianapolis. And uh, I, I, all I can say is I hope you're working on a memoir um, I know you've got one book already done coming out in the summer, but, you know, just based on this conversation and what I've, uh, of your work I've been able to follow and read thus far, Rabbi Mike, um, you have some wisdom to share and, and I appreciate you giving us a, a, a part of that today, but I hope you'll do more with it, honestly. I'm always, I'm such a history professor. I'm always giving people writing assignments. I'm sorry about that. But Listen, I, I love to write. You give me the idea, I'll give it a shot. So uh, thank you very much, by the way. Those are very kind words. Thank you. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls. Mm -hmm.